Tendon injuries are one of the most common athletic injuries. What is the quickest way to recovery? You're listening to ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD Clinician's Roundtable special segment focused on sports medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Ho from the University of Chicago, and joining me today is Dr. Nicola Mafuli, Professor and Chair of Trauma and Orthopedic Surgery at Keele University School of Medicine in Staffordshire, England. Dr. Mafuli, originally from Italy, is one of the most preeminent sports medicine and orthopedic consultants in the UK. He has more than 250 articles published in peer-reviewed journals on various aspects of trauma and orthopedic surgery, sports medicine, and sports trauma. We're discussing sports injuries in children. And Dr. Mufuli, another injury that is commonly seen by the primary care physician in the office in these young athletes is tendonitis. I know you've done a long, distinguished body of work in studying tendonitis. Talk to us a little bit about what tendonitis is to begin with. Well, first of all, it's not tendonitis. Ah. <laughs> Indeed, about ten... <laughs> a misnomer. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Uh, there is a misnomer which has been perpetuated through decades. In reality, the essential problem is not an inflammation of the tendon. You can have inflammation around the tendon, for example, of the paratenon, but the lesion of the tendon itself is really a failed healing response. As of late in the States, there is a group of sports physicians and sports endoscopic sports medicine specialists who are starting to talk about tendinosis, embracing a paradigm of degeneration. But indeed, these tendons are not degenerated even. They are just tendons which have been subjected to an injury. And for some reason, and we don't know what this reason is, they cannot heal and therefore they develop a failed healing response. We have performed much work mainly in the lower limb, in the uh, patellar tendon and in the Achilles tendon, but we're now gradually moving up the body in the shoulder, and we are seeing that these lesions are essentially the same wherever you're looking at. So in the rotator cuff, for example, the histological picture is indistinguishable from similar lesion in the Achilles tendon. What we do know is that far from being hypovascular and hypocellular, these injuries are hypercellular and hypervascular. In practice, our body is trying to reply to this insult by producing more and trying to repair itself. Only, as I was saying, for some reason, it is not quite possible for our body to do so. Um, what we do know is that some of us may be primed um, to develop a failed healing response. And there has been some very interesting genetic studies uh, looking at polymorphisms of some collagen genes, which show that uh, some population may be predisposed to these problems. Very interesting. So you suspect there may be genetic predisposition to uh, tendonitis? To tendinopathy? Yes, to tendinopathy. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> To tendinopathy or tendinosis, as we uh, yeah. commonly refer to it here. There's not much we can do about changing one's genetics, but we can help our patients and our physicians manage these tendinopathies. What are some of the common tendinopathies that we're likely to see in the office? Well, in children, it is now becoming more and more common to see tendinopathies that only 10 years ago were the remit of their older counterparts. 
We see, for example, tendinopathy of the main body of the Achilles tendon, tennis elbows, we see patellar tendinopathies. It is said that there are plenty of intrinsic and extrinsic factors, but up to now, no study has really shown a cause-effect relationship. So prevention is very often cited, but it is very unclear what this prevention would consist of. Once the patient presents, though, there is uh, some simple measures that can be adopted. Bill Stanish and Sandra Kerwin in Halifax in Nova Scotia, already in the 80s, were advocating the use of eccentric exercises. And these have been resurrected in the late 90s by some uh, um, Swedish groups. They seem to work if they produce pain and they are religiously performed over a period of three months. Unfortunately, not everybody is able to do that or not everybody is patient enough to undertake exercises twice a day for three months. And in these cases, you may want to consider other measures such as, for example, shockwave therapy. There is now a mounting body of evidence that in chronic cases, when applied judiciously, shockwave therapy does play a role. Uh, Several groups are investigating uh, injections And in my practice, corticosteroid injections are banned, even though uh, just about uh, everybody has used them at some stage in their career. But they are banned because, um, again, they are anti-inflammatory injections, which take away the pain. But one of the side effects of corticosteroids is the fact that they are catabolic and that they therefore inhibit the healing process. And this cannot be good for a tendon which is trying to heal. Some groups are experimenting with injection of autologous blood and the use of growth factors. We are using other substances such as a protein, for example, which is an inhibitor of the metalloproteases. And it is known now that in tendinopathies there is an imbalance between um, good and bad metalloproteases, and it is possible that a protein may restore this, uh, this balance. A group in Sydney in Australia is using GTN patches. So essentially um, the patches that one uses for the management of angina and they are put over over the painful area of the tendon and they are changed every day. But again, this is not a quick uh, fix because it can easily take six months uh, before uh, the patient experiences any any benefits. And also a side effect of GTM patches is the fact that that about 40% of patients experience blinding headaches. If you're just joining us, you are listening to a special segment focused on sports medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Ho, and I am speaking with Dr. Nicola Mafuli. And we're discussing tendinopathies in, in our athletes, uh, both uh, children and adult athletes. Dr. Mafuli, let's uh, talk about a couple of um, common tendin- tendinopathies that they're likely to see in the office. Let's talk about tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis. How do you go about managing uh, this common and oftentimes difficult-to-treat uh, malady? One thing that should be said is that well-trained tennis players rarely develop ten- a tennis elbow. And so paradoxically, one sees it, sees it more often in relatively sedentary patients, in relatively non-sporting patients. Uh, once it happens, you can try with eccentric exercises and with uh, uh, adjusting the, the grip, for example, on the tennis racket and changing the technique, um, for example, by using a two, uh, two-hand um, 
uh, grip of the racket. Um, there is some evidence that whatever one injects around the tennis elbow is going to be successful. There is at least a 30% positive effect of injections. ESWT, the shockwave therapy, seems to be effective in about 65% of patients. And if nothing works, then um, one can consider surgery. There is again a difference between the States and, uh, and the UK, in that in the States, the nurseful operation, uh, the operation is described by Robert Nischel more than 20 years ago, is uh, practiced and it can easily be done under local anesthesia, identifying the lesion of the extensor capillaris brevis and excising it. The UK said the operation which is most, for, most frequently performed is detaching the whole of the mass of the extensor common origin from the lateral epicondyle. Again, this can be done under local anesthesia and um, there is somebody who does it in a totally percutaneous fashion. I've seen uh, both operations done and um, they both have their reasonable success rates. Prior to surgery, um, what, how do you manage, how do you like to manage tennis elbow? Um, in, in my practice, I, I do on occasion use corticosteroid injections. I use the patch and have varying amounts of uh, success. Um, how do you manage tennis elbow in your practice? Well, the, the, the patients will have to abstain from the offending activity. So you, uh, you get them out of... Say you, they got to stop playing tennis if, if they want to get can, um They have to start, if not totally stop, at least play at a level where they do not get pain any longer. Um, so this may involve, as I was saying, changing the grip, changing the racket. Now these rackets are, for example, made up of graphite, which is extremely, uh, extremely tough, extremely resilient material, which transmits all the loads to the, to the muscles of the forearm and therefore to the common extensor origin. Um, the tension of the, of the racket also plays a role. Um, if you think about it, only probably 15, 20 years ago, the likes of John McEnroe uh, were tensioning the rackets to 25 kilograms, and now um, these tensions are used by sort of recreational type of, uh, type of players. And this, again, plays a role. So um, less tension on the, on the racket cords could be, could be one of the things that uh, I like to, uh, to suggest my, to my patients. A program of uh, eccentric exercises has to be implemented. And it can easily be done, for example, with a, uh, with a can of lager beer, uh, whereby <laughs> the, the patient... <laughs> we're in, the, in England, after all. Yes. And <laughs> whereby the patient... Um, uses the eccentric portion of the movement to stress uh, in a painful fashion the uh, the eccentric common origin. Just to back up a bit, what is an eccentric exercise? A muscle can contract and produce movement. Now, if this movement re- results in shortening of the muscle, it's called a concentric contraction. If, on the other hand, the muscle contracts but it lengthens while it is being, while the motion is being performed, then there is an eccentric movement. Yes, and that with a light weight in the hand can be done easily at home. Oh yes, I mean, it's, what what one needs is a good physiotherapist who teaches the exercises and supervises them for the first few times, and then the exercise has to be done at home twice a day morning and evening, and it is suggested that one should have something like 12 sets of 15 repetitions, so it's 180 movements per day. 
Wow. <laughs> I, that is why compliance is so difficult. Yes. Now, what about braces? There's very little evidence that braces work. We use them traditionally, but you know, I tell my patients that uh, traditionally we use them, uh, but the scientific evidence without, uh, sorry, the scientific evidence behind them um, is not terribly strong. In terms of braces, do you like to use a counterforce brace uh, like Dr. Nershaw developed? Yes, you just put it a bit distal to the extensor common origin, and the clasp seems to work in some patients, but it is totally unpredictable. And uh, unfortunately, it's never, to my knowledge, it has never been tested in a proper scientific fashion using enough patients of high enough level. Yes, I like to use the counterforce brace for patients as they're playing, but when they're not playing, I oftentimes have them use a wrist, a cock-up wrist splint to protect the elbow. Do you have any experience with that? No, I don't. When I was a fellow, I saw, I saw it used in the States, but over here we don't use it. Don't use the wrist brace yep. too much. So there are differences, yeah, country-to-country differences. <laughs> and then shockwave therapy or injections if they fail the exercise program? We use shockwave therapy. We use low-level energy. We use three sessions, one week apart, and we assess the patient about three or four weeks after the last session. It is not a panacea. Indeed, when we looked at the literature, and again, we published a paper on this on the, again, on the British Medical Bulletin, we found out that many authors did not use the appropriate protocol and therefore they were not getting the results that they were expecting. Nevertheless, if it's used properly and with selected patients, i.e. the patients who have had the condition for a relatively long period, at least three months, then it has, it has a role to play. Well, thank you, Dr. Mafuli, for being our guest. We've been discussing overused tendons and tendinopathies. I am Dr. Sherwin Ho. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Sports Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>